a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we have a special guest all the way from Western Australia. However, he served in the 6th Battalion. Not a bad battalion. I wouldn't say it's the best battalion. You know, three hours is the best battalion. But anyway... His name is uh, Liam Haven. He was uh, injured in Iraq, uh, which we'll definitely touch on. Let's welcome him to the show. How you doing, mate? Good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, mate. Really, really good. It's good to uh, good to meet you. You know, virtually, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I got. I got to ask though. When was the last time three hour I did a combat jump? Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you chair-born blokes, bloody hell. <laughs> Mate, we were linked up uh, through our good friend, mutual friend, red-headed uh, Luke Blue Andrews. Yes, the little uh, miscreant. Yeah, the ADHD, ADHD kid. He's he's, uh, like a- <laughs> he's a pest. He's a pest. Uh, but he's linked us up, mate, and I'm actually really pumped to have a chat about, obviously, uh, about your career, obviously, and your injury. And because, um, again, uh, when we spoke, you know, there was an infamous photo that was put out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that will definitely uh, touch on because it was uh, quite funny and we thought it was an absolute stitch up. Mm. But, you know, you guys say it wasn't, but I don't know. I don't know about you diggers, mate. I know I know what diggers are it, like. It's been a poor choice in in public, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was by accident. Absolute classic. Mate, let's, uh, let's kick off right from the start, mate. We want to find out where young Liam grew up, you know, family life, schooling, et cetera, and obviously, you know, what led to you joining the Defence Force? Well, I mean, I grew up like most other kids do. It was a happy family, safe. I enjoyed life, you know, as an early kid. Dad was a uh, was a cop, uh, retired in 2018, so he did 35 plus years. Yeah, right. In the database, but he always favoured the country postings. Yep. So I've seen more of WA than most people have, just from Dad being in the cops and moving from town to town every few years, which was fantastic. We grew up in the country, grew up on the coast, grew up in the desert, 
Um, eventually, though, we we settled down in Perth when I well, probably a year or so before I started high school. Yep, and we were here until year ten. Uh, it was kind of normal in the beginning, but I got picked on a lot in school, so I was literally scared to go to school every day. Oh shit! Even six three and one hundred and twenty kilos back then, I was a whippet. So yeah, yeah, right. And, and dad, you, dad being a didn't help. And, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought that would have. Yeah, and mum being an immigrant from Burma, this was obviously the climate in WA at the time. The boat people argument was happening. Yep. So because mum had darker skin, she was an immigrant, I copped all the boat person stuff, the, you know, the, the abuse you cop for being a, the, the son of a police officer and all that kind of jazz. Mm. Uh, then we, um, well, I decided to leave school, basically. Year 10 came, I realised I was free to make my own choice and I got out of there as soon as I could. Yeah, so, right. Siblings, you've got a sister? Two sisters. Two uh, sisters. Both young. Uh, the first one a year younger than me, and the second one uh, was born in 2015. So I'm I'm in 88. My other sister 89, and Jasmine in 95. Sorry, not 2015. Yeah, right. And how were they at school? Just regular girls at school. Uh, fine in the beginning. Mm. Um, Chelsea, being in you know such close age to me, she went through a lot of the same stuff I went through at school. Mm. Teasing. We both ended up taking different paths um, and dealt with it in our, in our own way. Jasmine, though, she was uh, in primary, like just starting primary school, I think, when I when I was leaving. Um, so she kind of wasn't really, everyone knew she was our sister, but she wasn't really associated or identified as being such. And being a girl as well, she didn't cop the same stuff that a boy cops. Yeah, of course. Uh, like even when we got to Broome, because I, I left and started working in rendering and construction and stuff like that, and Dad picked up a posting to Broome and just let me, let me shut that door. You're right, mate. You're right. Sorry, she's like seven months old. Nah, it's all, it's all sweet. Just back to your dad. Obviously, he spent 35 years and he said you only just got out in 2018. Mate, he must have been at the top. Sorry? He must have been like up there in the, the rank structure. No, 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 no. no. So he, he, he left the beat and started police prosecuting when oh, we gotcha. were in uh, high school, I guess, yep. towards the start of high school. Um. I think he just kind of got tired of being on the beat. He went through a few incidents. Um, can you hear that? Yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. That, that, right. that makes, it, makes it real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we, there was this incident when I was in primary school. I remember being awake uh, at night when I shouldn't have been awake because um, I had a, obviously like every kid had a TV in his room and I was staying up to watch Big Brother Uncut or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Late night jerk off. <laughs> but i i remember the door opening and mom just not screaming but she was quite clearly in shock and distressed and i come out of the room and immediately get yelled at and told off to go back in and i was kind of arguing back i want to see what's happened what's wrong what's wrong and then i see dad covered in blood with the bandage around his head like, and when I say covered, his police uniform was blood. Yeah, right. 
So he, he attended a DV incident and um, some uh, brain donor decided to take the, you know, those big thick plates from the microwave? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Yeah, over his head. Oh, shit. But he had that. There was a, an axe incident down in Denmark when uh, even, this is well before that as well, uh, involving an axe and a crazy dude and a hostage. And so he he went through enough and he wanted to leave the beat and do something more meaningful. Because mm. as cops, they get burnt out because, you know, they, they're not. arresting for doing crimes, but then there's nothing that happens. Yeah. Dad decided to go into prosecuting. Um, you know, that same sense of justice that brought him to the cops moved him into prosecuting. And he did that for quite a while uh, until probably mm, 2013, I guess. Yeah. 20, 2014. Uh, they moved down to Albany from Perth at the time. And dad slowly started kind of moving away from the police. Um, like the military, they're changing. Mm-hmm. They're kind of at the old guard and bringing in the young, like the younger people. So prosecutors who were sergeants, which is what dad was, there was no more positions for sergeants. Yeah. Just so it was either you take a voluntary redundancy or you move into back to normal policing. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, so we did that to 2018 and then took the redundancy. Yeah, yeah, mate. I'm sure the cops changed, just like the army. And yeah, I, exactly. I, I don't, I'm not sure if you can call them people anymore either. I don't know what the correct, <laughs> I don't know what the correct term is these days. <laughs> oh, you'll upset someone. Human beings. I don't know. <laughs> living, living. Yeah. Living. Hey, you assume someone's species. <laughs> living organisms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mate, so obviously you you, you leave school because you've had enough uh, getting. Yep. Uh, because of all the constant bullying, uh, you work as a renderer. <laughs> How'd you go, mate? You're just a young 16-year-old, straight on the tools. Every day. Just That was that dad joke went way over your head. Oh, sorry, what'd you say? Getting plastered every day. <laughs> dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Can you hear that? The phone. Can't hear that. Another dad joke. I don't know. It's just you got these little buttons on these on these systems where you can do the clapping or the laugh. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, I just did the laugh. Anyway, <laughs> let's get. Mate, I grew up doing that with my mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, so you're plastering, mate, and what you're probably what sixteen. Yeah, sixteen. Yeah. And how long did you end up doing that for? Uh well, sorry, no, it would have been fifteen. Oh, um, shit. for two years. So a year in Perth and then a year in Broome because Dad took a posting up there as a prosecutor. Uh, so we moved up. It was hard because having left school and working for a year, I thought I was an adult, obviously. <laughs> All teenagers, they're bloody adults. So I fought, I railed against it. Didn't want to leave, wanted to stay. You know, can I move in with a friend? No, Liam, you're too young. You're coming with us. Yeah. You're a kid. Yeah. So I went up to Broome and worked for a year, but Broome is... I don't like Broome. <laughs> I hated it up there. Did you? Uh, I, I, yeah. I stopped there when I did Oprelex with the, with the Navy, and uh, I thought Broome was nice. It's nice to visit. visit. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I had a great bunch of friends up there. I, re- I had a lot of fun, but working as a subcontractor, being in charge of myself, when you're doing like rendering down in Perth is all cement and plaster, but up in Broome because of the way they build houses out there, it's a lot of texture coating. Mm. So 
you can only really put it on the wall in the morning or in the late afternoon when it's cooling down. Yep. For a large portion of the day, you can only work by doing one small wall at a time because it just goes off too quick. Yeah, gotcha. So I'd find myself knocking off, going to pubs for lunch, coming back to work. If there was bad weather like a cyclone or something was on its way, we'd go surfing because that's the only time Broome ever gets good waves. Yeah. Um, but you fall into this lifestyle and everything just becomes monotonous. Yeah, the trendy lifestyle. And I said to myself, I need out. If I don't escape here, I'm going to end up stuck here for my entire life. Yeah, so yeah. – so those thoughts, obviously, about the military coming to you, into your into your into your brain. Uh, mm. Within your family, was there any military history outside, obviously, your dad's police history? Yeah, yeah. My grandfather on my dad's side and and my great grandfathers they all served in the British military. Yep. Uh, my grandfather was part of the King Cesar Light Horse in the UK. Oh shit! My great grandfather was shot in the face at Normandy which was interesting, I imagine. Yeah. You see the photo yep. before and after, and like in the after photos, it looked like he's he's got this dent in his cheek. Oh, shit. He's, oh, he's, he survived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently it went in his cheek and it either went out the other side or hit a tooth, crumbled something, and he spat it out. So, But, yeah, he's, he survived. Yeah, he ended right. up. Well, he ended up leaving my great-grandmother and he moved to Canada and started another family. Far out. So well, you've got obviously that family history within the military, and yeah. um, you know, at what stage did you just go? Did you see the ads on TV, or did you see? You know, did you play it army started, as a kid? Started when I left high school. Dad would leave the flyers around the house. Yep. You know, I've left school at year ten. Obviously, I didn't tell them why I left school. So they they want me to have guidance and direction, but knowing how fraught and tense our relationships were at times, because I was a I wasn't very. I wasn't a good son when I was a teenager. Who who is though, really? Um, so instead of overtly confronting me with what they thought I should do, Dad would leave these lies around, just in the hopes it would spark something. And it did. It never did. And then Broom came along, and I'm thinking to myself, I need out. I need to get out of here. And I remembered the flyers, and then I took it upon myself. I called the the number, got the package sent out. It arrived. Nineteen oh one. And what the hell is this? Yeah. And then we sat down and had a talk. And for me, it was the first time I was treated by them like a proper adult because this was truly the first adult decision I was ever making in my life. And how old were you? 17? Yeah, 17. Yep. So. And uh, so you make, you make the phone call, 13, 1901, and yep. you head into the recruitment station. Where was this? This was, so uh, this is in Broome. Uh, the first lot of interviews were at the North Force base, the reserve base there. Yep. And all, all they were was sitting down, talking to someone, and then doing push-ups and sit-ups. Yeah. Then nothing happened for quite a while, and I started getting really anxious because, you know, I just I wanted this to, to happen because I hadn't been actually accepted yet. Uh, then I got a letter saying that there was some medical issues because um, I played cricket quite a lot, uh, and I was a fast bowler, so I had shin splints in my shin. So that set back my enlistment six months waiting for the shin splints to plateau out and get the okay from the doctor. Yep. So I finally got the okay, sent that medical information through, and within like a month I get a phone call saying, we want you to come to Darwin. 
we want you to, to do your final interviews there and then we want you to sign the paperwork and away you go. So 5th of June uh, 2006, I signed the paperwork and then 666, I'm in Kapuka. So yeah. not an ominous date at all. <laughs> Far out. Um, so you uh, obviously you jump on the plane, you head down to Wagga Wagga. Um, how's the... How old were you, 17 or you're 18 at this stage? You, so you're still 17, you're still a kid. Obviously you get your parents to sign off and your dad's fucking, I'm sure he was more than happy to sign off and send you down there. So you head down to Wagga, mate. How did you find Kapuka coming from? You know, um, Different. Yeah. Very, very different. Obviously Structure. I've never been in an environment like that at all, let alone the, the, the climate of the bloody place. If this is winter... So yeah. coming from WA where I grew up, uh, winter was cold, but not like this. <laughs> so, yeah. But it was, I enjoyed it. I thought it was going to be really, really hard. And when you're going through it, you think it's going to be really hard. But then you get out to the wider army and you find out that it's it's not that hard. And I understand people get injured and they wash out or they, they make the decision not to continue. But when you're going through it, you kind of, you resent the people there, the corporals and the people in charge of you because you think they're just beasting you for no reason. Yeah. But then for the wider military and you go on operations and you you do your job, um, you realise that all they were doing was providing you with the tools to succeed in the military. That's all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And obviously at this mm-hmm. stage, mate, Iraq and Afghanistan, Timor, uh, Solomon Islands, all this is going on. So the, the, it was a very active time for the Defence yeah. Force. Uh, a different time for the defence force as well. Um, yeah. What were your thoughts on that? Obviously, did you ever think that you would get deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan or any of those places at that stage? Uh, I knew being in infantry that there was a high chance that something would happen. But before joining the army, I didn't know that much about the army. Because mm. like I said, it, it wasn't out of any patriotism that I joined. That comes later when you, it gets instilled in you during training, of course. But so my knowledge of what the army was ha- what was happening in the army at the time was very very minuscule. Um, so I knew I may get deployed somewhere, but I had no idea what was going on in the rest of the world. I mean, I'm I turned eighteen in training, so I was still a kid. Yeah, yeah. So you finished Kapuka. You, you've uh, it's a bit of a culture shock, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. Was there any infantry uh, section commanders or anything like that? Uh, there was one. Uh, two, sorry. Yeah. Um, the one we had, he ended up having to leave. Yep. He was from Townsville, but he, he's, I think it's malaria or Ross River or something, so he would get sick once a year or a few times a year. Yeah. Uh, so he, he got swat, swapped out for a bombardier who was in charge of us at Kapuka. So. Yeah, right. So there's obviously a couple of you guys, uh, recruit inventory guys. You get uh, sent up to Sunny Singleton, mate. How did you find the transition from, uh, you know, folding your fucking handkerchief to four square centimetres to, yeah. uh, you know, actual infantry tactics. Well, having access to a bar every night. And a bar, yeah, and, yeah, Fanny's in Newcastle. <laughs> um, we, we were only there for holding. So we spent, I think, six weeks at Singleton or something like that. Yeah. Maybe five weeks in holding. Um, our IET course was the first one to run out of battalion. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck, so I've, we, never, I've never heard of this. This is this is this is a hot scoop here. Yeah, so um, we went to Singleton to basically we're just in holding. 
they ran us through a truckload of fitness assessments yep. um, with the infamous Corporal Brown. Um, but it was at the end of the day, all we were there to do was wait because there was more people that had to join us from other recruit courses in, in Wagga. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, so once our numbers were met, we, we got on a bus. Uh, was it a bus? I think it was a – Probably. It's a cheaper option. Yeah, it may have been a <laughs> bus. I can't remember now. Um, made our way to, to 6RAR yep. and we were planted in the long town lines there, the uh, transition lines they used to be, and our IET course started. Yeah, so, right. So, like, I'm, I'm interested. Like, I think I have heard of something like this before, but anyway, so all your instructors were just 6RAR fucking lads? Yep. yep. That's, that's fucking cool. That's cool. Yeah, it, it, it sounds cool, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, was, yeah, probably a bit more hazing and a bit more, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Especially because you're in in the home of the heartland of Sixaria as well. Yeah, exactly. So they, I think the reasoning behind the army doing this is so each battalion can train their IETs the way they wanted them to be. Like obviously, you've, I think the roles of battalions they've changed now, but six was still a was it motorized or mechanized? Mechanized, I think. Was it mechanized? Motorized? Mechanized? I don't know. Well, yeah, because we had the APCs and then yeah. we transferred masters. So, um, so they trained us the way that we wanted they wanted us to be trained but yep. because they were all from six i mean we had a punishment corporal and a punishment sergeant <laughs> which you don't get in, in singleton yeah uh we had uh, a very in- infamous sergeant who was the punishment sergeant he's a good guy he's just very firm but also very fair yeah he the uh when it, he broke some military record for the most um about turns during an rop session <laughs> <laughs> This this dude was literally walking two steps and then turning with his freaking thirty two kilo pack on for the full two hours or however it was that he was Fuck. being. So Shit. I mean, it was a hard course, but at the same time, we got to do and learn things that you don't actually do at IETs. That's which what I was mean. Great. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like living the battalion life. So how lo- how long was the whole process? Is it te- well, you know similar to Singer? Was it ten weeks? Yeah, yeah, same time, same time. So it's ten weeks. You kind of, yep. Yeah, fuck, it's inter- just interesting. I'm interested. And um, is it, it, does it just mirror image what they did at Singo, like, or is it uh, the same? You know, some of the curriculum? major bands did. Yep, but others didn't. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard. It's hard to explain, really. It's it was you're learning all the same gear, all the, all the same stuff. You do the same courses. I think the field exercises were a bit longer. Yep. Like 6RAR being so close to um, an exercise area, we were out there quite a lot. Yeah. I think I, probably not necessarily as much. But there was a – I mean, there was some issues. This being the first course of this nature that had been put through. A battalion, yeah. There was some teething problems. Of course. Uh, and then there was some problems with some uh, – some of the IETs uh, probably did not do the right thing. Yeah. There was a major incident involving, um, well, someone managed to keep some rounds basically and had a little list of people. Oh, no so, way. Holy shit. Yeah. That's full Bill, Billy Madison style. Basically, yeah. So that, that was all found out. Um, but when that came out, it also came out, well, everything came out, drinking in the lines, staying out after curfew, Sneaking in chicks, all that kind of shit. So that sounds like the battalion life. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we 
we were trained back Italian life. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All that, all that happened, and then when we finished the course, I think there was a little bit of probably a bad taste in mm. the high rise counts. Yeah, the, the sergeant and the platoon commander. Um, I mean, for me myself, and I know a lot of other people, um, I respect the hell out of them because they're they're great, great guys. But they, you know, they never look at you quite the same. Yeah, there, wasn't, there was a lot of coldness, I guess. Yeah, right. You finish IETs, and there's obviously a platoon's worth of guys, and then you all just get distributed uh, throughout six area, pretty much. Oh, there was there was more than a platoon. I think there was like maybe two two platoons worth. Oh, was maybe. there? Oh, fuck. Was this the first yeah. and last course they each, did this? Each section had about twelve people. Oh shit. Yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah, obviously, right. people people washed out later. So mm. at, by the end of the course, it, it settled down a bit. There was less people, but. Yeah. Uh, again, so you obviously you, you march out of uh, IETs out of long tan lines, move into uh, the popular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What uh, you uh, what you know? say? What company did you go to? Uh, we were all in transition, so because uh, the battalion was at um, they were in Afghan and they were in Timor, mm. the astute and slipper. Yep. So uh, we kind of we paraded the Delta. But really, we had nowhere, so we were literally just waiting, waiting, yeah, yeah. hurry up and wait until yes. the, until the battalion was back top thing. Yeah, but because it was course season as well, so all the guys from Timor were going to come back to do courses, the IMB courses, because this is the same year that Six got the IMBs. Yep, yep. The guys from Timor were going to come back do those courses and then go to Afghan. So. Which was lucky for us because as IETs, there's no better environment to go and train or to, to just hone your craft, I guess, than a non-combat deployment. And Timor was just that. I mean, it, it, it wasn't non-combat, but the, the level of danger was nothing like the Middle East. Yeah, ex- exactly okay. right. Um, so you – sorry, this is uh, – so you get posted to Alpha Company. I, I was posted to Alpha for Timor. Yeah. Yeah, for Timor. So you head to Timor in uh, 2006 to 2007 ish? Yeah, so their deployment started 06 to 07. Yep. We got there January 07. Yeah, right. So what, what was the what were the emotions like? Uh, you're like, fuck yeah, this is World War. Well, Let's go. Expect. Yeah. <laughs> like we got there and we literally just get you tapped on the shoulder and you're like, go in that direction. It was. You know, in movies when they have the POWs and they're separating everyone, and you're like, "Where, where are you going? Am I going to see you again?" So they separate us off into Alpha Company and Charlie, Com- Charlie Company, and then they put us into a mog, and we're driving through the streets in Timor. And because of the way Timor is, they're like, "Oh, just keep your head down." And I'm like, "What? From what? <laughs> we're an open mog. Yeah, we've got we don't have helmets. We don't have gear. What the fuck are we keeping our head down from?" <laughs> um, obviously nothing. I must. It, Probably just to scare us or something. Yeah, yeah. Where were you stationed most of the time in Timor? Was it just out of Dili? Uh, out of Dili. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. How did you um, – what did you guys do? Was it just uh, patrolling every day on foot throughout Dili? Yeah, and- patrolling, searching for uh, quote-unquote illegal weapons, which were, you know, basically slingshots with poo-covered spears on them, basically. Because <laughs> obviously Timor kicked off uh, – kicked off early 2006 – 
Um, one, yeah. I think three hour was one of the first ones back in there after the uh, presidential. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, some of three hour three hour DFSW came with us. Um, yeah, right. Not there, but because Alfredo Ronaldo was running around doing his thing, mm. and the whole battle of Sarme happened when we were there. Yep. So we were given DFSW from three hour. There was SAS there as well. So we were basically the cordon for the SAS when they raided that compound. Yep, yep. And as a brand new soldier, this was freaking awesome. Yeah. It, it was great to to actually be serious because you, you obviously you're serious, you're patrolling, you're learning how the real military works, but to actually be able to do your job, it was great. Yeah. Scary. And there were times that were extremely funny. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> And you're only, what, 18, 19? Yeah, 18. Just, just a young pup. So how long did you spend in Timor in total? About six months? No, like three, three and a half. Oh, is it? Oh, like fuck, that's not bad. Yeah, it was just a real, like, the, we were there to replace the people that left. Yeah, yeah. Anything uh, significant happened while you are over there? Anything, you know, riots uh, or you shoot some 40 mil gas at someone? Oh, yeah, there was gas. There was a raid on the... Um, <laughs> On the compound where they were storing the food. Yeah. And my Lance Corporal, who I was terrified of. <laughs> He's a great guy. I love him now, but I was terrified of him. Big Kiwi Maori dude. Um, I made the mistake of looking at his chest. He had a big tattoo there. Yeah. Uh, that said Fonda, his wife's name. And I asked him why he has Honda tattooed on his chest. <laughs> oh, he was not happy. <laughs> that just, it just set us off wrong. And eventually I redeemed myself later on when we got back to the battalion. Um, but all these people, they're trying to get through this gate to break into this facility and, they, you know, we obviously it's a non-lethal situation. Mm. And we're like, what do we do? And he's walking past, just break their fucking fingers. I'm like, <laughs> all right, okay. And we literally had to because there was hundreds and hundreds of people. Some of them had batons and weapons and stuff and we had all the riot gear. But if they had kept going, this gate was going to come down. Yeah. And two sections of Alpha Company 6 RR were going to get overrun with hundreds of people. So we had to keep them away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of 40 no mil. Got, no one got killed or anything like that. No. So we were injured, of because people just wouldn't listen. Yeah. On injuries on both sides, but nothing major. So, yeah. right. And then when Same rolled around, obviously the SAS storm, the compound, the compound's on the top of this hill. We're at the bottom of the hill in the corp, in the, as the cordon. And they're, they're shooting down at the sats. They're shooting down the hill. So obviously you've got rounds whizzing past. Mm. We were we were behind a wall, so we were kind of safe. But one of the other sections was closer to the action than us. And I don't know whether or not one of them has a throwing arm that can reach the top of the hill, but uh, Lance Corporal and the Corporal decide to pop smoke. Of course, the wind's blowing down the hill. <laughs> so CS just goes oh, no. off the bench. It was freaking <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> yeah, right. Far out. <laughs> it's, uh, it seems to be a common trend in Timor, um, soldiers gassing their own troops. <laughs> if anyone knows about the infamous 3 RAR 2007 trip. <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, let's just say a CSM got gassed <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> crazy crazy times. Crazy times. <laughs> Mate, so... You finish your first trip. You get back to Brisbane. You're, you know, a cashed up dig. You get your first bloody uh, what uh, ASM, 
active service medal. Mm-hmm. How was the how was the mood in the battalion? Oh, it was a shock because <laughs> we thought that we'd been on deployment that, and obviously culture and infantry yeah. led all that kind of stuff. We thought the fact that we'd been on deployment may have moved us past that. No. It did not. No. Everyone who left Timor for courses and was back at the battalion didn't know who we were. So to them, we were just dirty little lids. Yeah. The people that we served with in Timor, we'd been relegated back to lid. <laughs> um, so it was, a, it was a culture shock, a huge culture shock. Yeah. Um, yeah. It didn't last too long because we got the word not long after getting back from Timor that we were going to Iraq that year. So... Courses started and pre-deployment started and everyone was fighting for a position to stay in the, like stay at 6RR to go because Beckdet and Alpha was going to, well, and Alpha and Charlie were going to uh, Iraq. Uh, Sorry, to um, to Lil. Yeah, and this is for OBG, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just just for the listeners, even for myself, so can you just run us through what the difference between was OBG and obviously Secdet? So Secdet is security detachment, so... Mainly those dudes were based in Baghdad around the embassy. Um, they, to my knowledge, they would do runs through the green zone, sometimes into the red zone for uh, convoy security, stuff mm-hmm. like that, um, IED inspections, uh, and a lot of CPP. Yep. Uh, whereas OBGW was Overwatch Battle Group. Uh, we were number four. So our main job was to watch the oil pipeline because attacks on that were common. Um obviously patrol to make sure there was no IEDs hanging around the bridges, uh, perform key leadership engagements with the local clerics and sheikhs to kind of improve relations Yep, and facilitate the, I guess, the early stages of the reconstruction effort. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And um, again, just before you head over to Iraq, uh, what's the lead-up training? You do, what, do three months up at Shellwater or Tinkan Bay? Uh, we did... Uh, obviously, we went through the courses period for battalion, mm. and then we started the pre-deployment stuff. So I think there was there was Wide Bay. Hang on, is it Wide Bay? Wide Bay, yeah, Wide Bay, up at Gimpy. Wide, yeah, yep. Wide Bay, Tincan Bay, and then up to Townsville to that massive urban High range. setup. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, uh, but yeah, it was it. It lasted until well, from maybe. June, May, June, all the way to leaving in November. Yeah, yeah. And how was the, again, just back to your morale, how was it you getting your first trip to, you know, an active fucking war zone? There was, no, you know, no bullshit in Iraq, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were, we were excited. We were, you know, you, you, join the inf- you join the army, you're in infantry or in any combat corps. It's, you've gone through training, you've, you're instilled with, you know, Australia, yay. But you want to do your job. Yeah, exactly. You want to do what you signed up for. And that doesn't mean going and shooting people. It, it means doing your job. Yeah. In the interests of Australia. And we were really excited to do that. Not to mention getting the opportunity to work with Americans and the British. And, I mean, a lot of people don't realise how many people were in Iraq. Like oh, yeah. Lil's yeah. like five square kilometre base. Yeah, yeah. We had so, yeah. So, in two thousand, was it late two thousand seven? You yeah, two thousand seven. We got to Kuwait. Yep. Uh, 
which this is actually kind of funny. So you go from the airport, you get transported to to the base in Kuwait, and on the front of the base, there's this sign there. Have you ever been before? Yeah, I we went to Kuwait before again. Yeah, so yeah. there's this sign there, and it says date since last rocket attack. Yeah, date yeah. last mortar attack. And we're looking at these numbers, and they were very low. Then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it said date since last negligent discharge <laughs> zero. <laughs> I'm like, wow, these are oh, these are professionals. Yeah, <laughs> mate, that'll change when a whole bunch of infantry get in there. There's always NDs everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there wasn't really. We, we we were there, I think, for two, three weeks, just doing courses, really. So yeah, a bit of acclimatation to the to the weather as well. That realizing that you're on deployment and you're in a dangerous environment, yet there's still a Burger King two feet away from you. Oh fuck yeah, Fat Alley. <laughs> but I mean, the best part was the medical stuff. Yeah. Me being the first aider. Yep. We did training with the uh, well in the American way of of how they how they do things, and it was it it was heaps better than us. Because yeah. everybody, everyone in Australia has grown up with DRABC, and I know they've added other letters to it now. But the Yanks had this system called March. Yeah. Which massive hemorrhage, airway. Uh, resuscitation, circulation, and hemorrhage. hemorrhage. Yep. Oh, sorry, resuscitation, cardiac, and hemorrhage. Yeah. So the, the first thing to do is obviously stop the massive hemorrhage. And DRABC, they're like, no, 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 no. You got to put gloves on first. You got to clear the area. <laughs> clear, clear the area, mate. I'm in a fucking war zone, getting shot at. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't clear the area, and it's not safe. <laughs> do, do I not do the ABCs then? No. <laughs> well, after we learned this, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. What they're teaching is so much better. And I, I know it's changed now for the for the infantry. They I think they they adopted that more T triple C. Yeah, that trauma yeah. kind of rather than the standard D R A B C stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. No fuck, fuck I remember the medical training back in the early two thousands. Water, water, water. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the snake? Where's Snake's the- gone. <laughs> Um, so you, um, you spend what, two or three weeks in Kuwait, uh, you jump mm-hmm. on a Herc, I'm, I'm guessing, and fly into yep. Baghdad. Yep. Most uncomfortable flight in the world. Mm, yeah. It's like a bunch yeah, of so sardines we, and a big giant plane. Well, it was just the fact that we couldn't like equalize. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's getting off like, and their ears are killing them. Yeah. And we get off, and then there's this some um, dusty old, crusty sergeant just handing us bags of shit. And we're like, "What's what is it? What's this?" And he's it's there was information about the base. There was certain items that were to carry with us at all time, and we were just kind of whisked away, and then um, shown to our accommodation. And then the next morning, it, it began. So yeah, so so just just to confirm, where were you in? Where was the OBG base? Where was that? Until until so not far from Nazaria in the Dikar province. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And how did you guys get from uh, Baggers out to there? From where? Baghdad. Well, did you fly into Baghdad or did you fly straight? No, 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 no. no. Is there yeah, a, we, oh, is there an airstrip straight out there? Yeah, yeah, we flew into Yeah, Israel. gotcha. My bad, my bad. I thought you flew into Baggers. I think they used to, but when Talil went from being an American base to an everyone base, we started using it. Obviously, everyone started using it. So. Yep, yep. So you fly straight in, you get issued all your kit, uh, yep. fucking got your neck guards on and fucking dick dick guards on. and I, I had none of that. Oh, didn't you? 
No. So we didn't even have um, body armor. <laughs> we what do you had it during training, but the body armor that we were given was the previous deployment's body armor. Yeah, right. That's yeah. odd. That's odd. We started the cha- the handover process. Um, I think in the beginning it was the, the platoon commanders, the sergeants and the corporals and the lance corporals went on a few patrols with the the people that were there first. Yeah, like nursery, nursery I patrol. It, I think it may have been 5-7. Yep. I, I may be wrong. Um, and then they hand us their, their flak vests and stuff like that. And within a week, everyone's got freaking prickly heat and pimples oh. all over their because this shit is grotty. Yeah. You don't have time to wash it, clean it, and let it dry before you need to use it. So, yeah, oh. you know, a very short amount of time, you know, I, I still didn't know what was in half the base. You know, we're on our first patrol. Yeah, so just just run us through what a patrol. Um, I know that obviously you guys had the labs, cruising around the labs and uh, uh, well, bushes or? So the way it worked is that you had combat team healer yep. and combat whaler. Whaler was uh, second fourteen, the cavalry unit, mm-hmm. and from six RAR. Combat team healer was Alpha Company six RAR, and I think a unit from Cav for one of their troops, or I think their troop, yeah, their troops. So yeah, and but we had the Bushmasters, and we would just, like I said, we cruise around, stop somewhere, do a quick foot patrol, unless we had to. Conduct an OP, which was our first patrol, was an observation post on the oil pipeline. So there was a bit of chatter that the OAR had detected. Um, OAR is like a American Iraqi. I don't want to say mercenary force, but they're, they're military. They were yeah, just militia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they detected chatter that there was a portion of the pipeline that may come under attack. Um, so our first gig was sitting there in the desert watching this pipeline. And this was late November. And we're like, surely it's not going to be that cold. It's the desert. (laughs) Freezing. No one brought jumpers. No one bought anything. Everything (laughs) was Bushmaster, which we thought would stay with us, but that dropped us off and left. Oh, no. So I had to take out the stretcher from my my, my, my med kit and drape that over me. Just for a little tiny bit of warmth. Far out. It, like bitterly cold. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and, of course, you, you're doing this OP and you see nothing. Just, there was a few, like, tracer rounds in the distance. Obviously, the OAR had found who they were looking for and a bit of a scuffle started. But that was, you know, we were in no danger, but nowhere, nowhere near that. Yeah. And that, that like, regular for Iraq. Yeah. You, you're t- sit and watch and, and not engage and you're watching these firefights happen and you just kind of, you're talking amongst yourselves like who's, because you don't know who's who. Yeah. You know, you know who they are but you don't know what side's what and you're kind of trying to make sense of what you're seeing and kind of put together a little story in your mind just to keep yourself awake. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just back on the the previous uh, battalion, that was F, probably 5-7 I think you said. Uh, did, did, did yeah, whatever battalion was, did they have any anything significant happen to them while they were there that that they handed over with? Not that I know of. No. Yeah. Right. And then obviously up until you know your incident, did you guys have any scenarios no, there was or a few things? Uh, I think one of the cab, one of the 
I think it was one of the cab guys, one of the troops there. There was an IED incident, but it didn't. Nothing like there was no danger. I think mm. it, it either didn't didn't detonate or it detonated far far out of their their danger zone. Um, there was a few incidents where we had to attend scenes that weren't very pleasant, and you know you're hunting for people, but there wasn't. It's it's it was boring. It's there's no way to describe yeah. it really. It's you're sitting there in the desert. You're, you're doing your job, which is great, but you also feel kind of handcuffed yeah. at the same time. Yeah. yeah. What was the active? So, what was the active threat? The current threat status. You know, was it EFPs uh, or were they talking they, about gunfights? Was the threat? Say again. Sorry, you just cut out. Uh, Jayish Al Mahdi. Yep. And Jayish Al Masra. So they they became ISIS eventually. Okay. So. They were the ones that were running weapons, that were building the bombs and stuff like that. So our main job was watching crossroads for possible weapons deals. Yet when we saw them, we couldn't do anything. Mm. We fought. So what was the the ID threat at that stage too? Oh, the, yep. Like the, oh yeah. So we we received extensive training from the um, the British because they were the EOD team there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were showing us stuff that they'd picked up and found in the last two weeks. There was a heap of them, like a lot. Yeah, right. They're all extremely sophisticated. You don't realise it when you're not in the military, but these dudes that live in Bedouin camps and, and live in little shacks in the desert, they're not dumb. No, no. They need to, to, you know, to put expanding foam around an IED to make it and then throw sand on the foam while it's drying to make it look like a rock. Yeah, they know enough to connect to passive infrared, you know, the thing on your garage. Yeah. That set light when you're coming home. They know enough to put that on there because it can't be picked up with an infrared scanner. Yeah. But it will trigger, once it's on, it'll trigger the bomb if something passes it. Wow. Which is obviously why we had stuff like KLAN on the front of the vehicle. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, these, these bombs are sophisticated and, it was around this time they started using EFPs as well as IEDs. And yeah. I can't remember what EFP stands for. Um, but it, explosive form projectile. Right. Well, there you go. It's, it's basically a massive Milo tin with a copper funnel on the inside full yeah. of shrapnel explosives. And when it, when it blows up, the copper gets, turns molten, inverts, and you've got a, a bullet. And this thing will shred a tank. Yeah. Yeah, they destroyed a few Abrams back in those times. I know, yeah. And, like, unfortunately, that's what happened with us. That's what the IED was. It was an EFB. So. Fucking hell. But we'll, uh, we'll definitely touch on that. Uh, so just, just up, up until before then, obviously you guys are just in and out of the base just doing regular patrols on this pipeline type thing and cruising around. Yeah. The way the roster worked was you do a certain amount of time on standard security patrols, then you're a certain amount of time on um, – Quick reaction, and then you've got, uh, I think, another like a second round of standard security patrols. But your your job is a little different, rather than just riding around with the bushmasters. It's usually you staying out in the desert. Yeah, um, and then you're on rest. So I, I think they were like a week each. Each roster or rotation was about a week or something like that. Oh, that's not too bad. And this is probably what, a six seven month uh, trip in total, or was meant to be seven months. Yeah, seven months. Yep. Okay, well, let's touch on the day. So, you know, the 17th of the 5th, uh, 2008, 
mm-hmm. mate. Run us through this day. This is the day that uh, essentially it just fuck changes your life for the rest of your life. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I think it was like we left the day before, or maybe the the day before that. I remember speaking to my dad on the phone prior to leaving, which I would usually do if I was going out for more than twenty four hours. Mm. And the the last thing you guys is keep your head down. Uh, ironically. <laughs> So we're off to do this observation post. Um, the Bushmasters drop us off. We had about an eight or nine K hike into our first location. Yep. Bombed out building on the outskirts of Nazaria. We camped there many, many times, um, basically watching two specific buildings on the outskirts of the city for activity. And you, we'd often see someone, you know, he, they come out, he gets out on a phone, he talks, and then he disappears back inside. People rock up, drop something off and leave, and it was, you know, we couldn't really do anything about it, obviously. We just had to report whatever we saw. So we're there for, I think, six hours or something, and then we pack up, walk another three or four Ks to this building, a two-story building, and from this building we had to watch this crossroads for a weapons deal that was supposed to go down. Um, So we've got four people, I think two people at top, four people inside sleeping and two people patrolling the outside of the building that we're in. Yep. No, uh, we were there well, until the early hours, I guess. And then we, we saw nothing packed up and started walking back to where the vehicles were. And we, we'd been in this area many, many times. So we, we know, we knew what was normal and what was not normal. Um, what was not normal is that the place we were supposed to be dropped off was blocked off by a pile of sand. Um, but there was a wedding in the area. So the information we got was that the sand was there to stop any military people from disturbing the wedding. Obviously, looking back on a massive red flag. Yeah. Massive, but hindsight is twenty twenty. Of course, yeah. So that, that forced us to be dropped off at a different area. And even though you, you're on deployment, you're not supposed to set patterns, there's only certain things you can do at certain times you can do things differently. mm like a, a pattern's gonna be set. There's there's no ifs ands or buts about that. Uh, it just it depends how many options you've got. And for this area we were supposed to go, there was only very few options. And I wouldn't be surprised if more than one area was watched in mind, because that makes sense for that. Yeah. So we've we've walked back from where we were, and we're about halfway back to the pickup point, and all of a sudden behind us something seen on the on the track. There's this figure walking. So we break track and we go off into the bushes and the figure continues to walk past and it, it's a teenager, like a, well, I'd say teenager, but about 12, maybe 13. Fighting age male. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, didn't look suspicious, didn't even look at us as if he didn't even know we were there. And we're all sitting there. We waited for him, for him to disappear. We waited there for about half an hour and we're all kind of, you know, what the fuck's going on here? What's... What's that about? This We'd never seen this before. Never had we seen a kid of his age walking this track at night all the times we'd been in this area. Mm. So we're, we're wary. We, instead of taking the track, like going back to the track, we've kind of cut around, uh, added a, you know, a long, long time to the walk. But we uh, finally get back to the pickup point. We load up. Everything looks clear. Um. I was the the stand-in to IC that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, our two IC, he, he would sometimes come with us on patrol, sometimes he wouldn't. 
Um, and other times he would not stand up at the back, um, obviously because we just had such a long OP and he was awake for a lot of it. I think he, he got rested and I stood up at the back at the, the rear left-hand Capola. Yep. Um, so we get like 100 metres down the road. Uh, we were the lead vehicle. Um, we weren't supposed to be, but we ended up being. Uh, and then bang. No one knew what happened. I didn't know what happened. There was this big flash. I got flung back into the Capola. Um, training kicks in. First thing we do, you know, you shut the Capola, you get inside. Mm. And me being the common medic, the first thing I'm doing is touching the back of my head, just making sure there's no soft patches anywhere. Yeah. Um, and then I said, no, I'm good, I'm good. Um, there's dust in my eyes that I can't see yet. And... I didn't realise it, but I was slurring my words quite heavily. Yeah. And the guy across from me, Weeks, he, he's uh, he's turned on the light in the Bushmaster and he goes, oh, fuck. Hey, that's fucked. Hey, that's hurt. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I went to touch my face. He's like, don't touch your face. And I went, all right. And I started to panic because I'm not in pain. Mm. I'm trying to blink the dust out of my eyes. And I don't even register that I'm freaking injured. Um, so once we secured the area, once there was, it was determined that there was no like follow-up attack, um, I'm out the vehicle. Like the area has been secured. The other vehicles have made sure of that. I'm out on the ground. I'm taking all my shit off. And they start dousing water on my, on my face. And that was when I realised that something's wrong because mm. I can feel water in places I'm not supposed to be able to feel water. Like there was a, underneath my lip, there was a, a, a gash that went all the way through and I could feel water hitting my teeth. And I'm like, that's not supposed to happen. Um, and my shirt was covered in blood and everything as well. And I'm like, well, okay, this is, that's more than just water. It's hot and sticky. Um, being the, the combat medic, I'd, I'd given everyone training and I was very confident in them. But I'm, I also said to Molly, the two I see, you know, don't, fuck around here, what's wrong? Mm. And he goes, hey, bro, you lost your eyes, your eyes. And he was mumbling and I went, bad? He goes, yep. And oh, that's when shock kind of hit, I guess. Because you, you say to yourself, no, it's not going to be that bad. Yeah. But it, regist- it never registered that the glasses I was wearing weren't on my face anymore. So you, you had those fucking uh, those stock standard issued ESS well, ESS one well, or Wally X, yeah. But because we were so like this is what I mean that EFP it went off in front of the vehicle a meter or so in front yeah. of us. Fuck. Um, Caitlin did its job, tripped the passive infrared thing. The projectile missed it, like went through past the front of us. Um, obviously, Bushmasters the the strongest points in the Bushmasters are the windows. They're mm. like two inches of reinforced glass and the passenger window was cracked almost all the way through. Yeah. Um, I've got a piece of the shrapnel here um, that someone saved for me and it's an insidious, gnarly bit of hard, twisted metal. Yeah. So little Wiley X glasses. No chance. Yeah, no chance. Did the EF, was it EFP, was it? So you said it was an EFP actually. Did it, didn't breach the hull at all, did it? So it shot off the wrong way, which is a fucking probably a good thing because it would have been a lot more oh, yeah. fucking, lot more fucking damage. Yeah, it would have been, would have been gone. Um, the left hand side of the vehicle was scarred 
there was pits everywhere and scratches. It was not pretty. Um, I tried to get hold of the window later on, but it got back to six RAR, got put in the muse- like the museum there, and then disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have, would have had it. But. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll track it down. We'll try and steal it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> imagine that it's driving. Fuck! Someone's just knocked off a fucking bushmaster from the War Memorial. Where's it gone? It's heading out to Western Australia. We're driving it. Obviously, they took the window out, and yeah, it was in the museum there, or the 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 little shop near the boozer, and then it just disappeared. No yeah. one knows where it's gone. We'll track it down. How many vehicles were in the in this in this package? Uh, four. So you had four Three. bushies, four bushies in the package, and what what, what was uh, the order of march? Where were you guys sitting? So we we're in the front. Oh, so you were lead lead vehicle. Vehicle, uh, we weren't supposed to be, but we were ready to go um, before the other vehicle was. So we just put ourselves in just the jumped lead in. position. Yep, just to yeah, hurry, just to hurry things yeah. along. Obviously, they're too long. It's it's that annoying period where the it's dawn's happening, so NVGs are becoming useless. So we just wanted to get going. Yep. Uh, so yeah, it was. I think it was us, the second vehicle, the PC vehicle, and the fourth vehicle. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So obviously, shit goes bang. You're in the back of the vehicle. Everyone else is everyone else fine. You know, you know. Yep. yep. They're just a bit fucking shaken. Sorry. They're just a bit shook. Obviously. Yeah. Well, because you can't see outside from the inside either because of those blast screens. Mm. We're standing at the back. If I wasn't standing there, Weeksy, who was facing the other way, may have caught something in the back of the head. I mean, he's lucky he didn't anyway. Um. So no one else got injured, but if I didn't get injured, he could have gotten seriously hurt. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. It was, so it's kind of lucky in a way. I was guess. It, uh, did you have a PWS up there or did you have the commander up on his, his hatch? No, there was a PWS at the front. Fucking hell. Fuck, if there was a commander up there, that would have been fucking shredded. Yep. Go yeah. on. Fucking hell. So, I, so yeah, again, you were the only one up 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 top. So obviously uh in direct line of uh shrap and obviously just the blast itself. So you you, you yeah, you pull down, obviously the guys have gone, fuck, it's Havo, he's he's injured. Well yeah, uh, we both like that's the first thing we did. We both pulled down. Um then they yeah, they realized I was injured and then took me outside once it was safe. So Yeah, other than your eyes, what was the other extent of your injuries to your face? Did you have like um Cuts, bruises. Yeah, there was little just abrasions. Shit everywhere, really. Cuts and bits and pieces of small granular metal stuck in there. Yeah, so nothing yeah. was like fucking your nose wasn't like dislodged or your teeth weren't knocked no. out or anything. Yeah, sweet. A hole underneath my lip that went all the way through. I don't know how my teeth survived because later on my tongue was hanging out of the hole after the drugs had kicked in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. And there was my neck. Uh, like a millimeter from my carotid Oof. that was cut all the way through. Again, didn't slice my throat. It just soft tissue. Yep. But stuff like shrapnel made it made it all the way to you know near my spine. Yeah, and uh, obviously you stay conscious throughout the whole fucking ordeal. A- again, so we've they've obviously identified. They put out the nine liner. What happens from here? Uh, I basically they treated me. Yep. All they could do was and I, I feel really bad for the guys um because they had to push pieces of my you know eye um not able to be saved but they couldn't 
remove it, obviously. So they had to push pieces back into the, the hole and then bandage it up and then obviously get me away. But being the combat first aider, I, I knew that this was going to hurt and I knew I couldn't give myself morphine because I'd have to go straight to surgery. Yep. So I, I the green whistle, I double-dosed myself with that, um, which was good and bad because I was pissed off that I'd gotten hurt and I mm. wanted to walk to the helicopter. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Oh, I was not happy that they had to carry me. I wanted to walk. Yeah. And I was 120 kilos, you know, and they're picking me up. I'm like, fuck, Ava, you're a heavy cunt. Um, and I'm, I'm hurling abuse at them as well. Obviously, I'm off my face on these drugs. I'm slurring my words, my heart, my tongue's hanging out of the hole in my mouth. Yep. Um, I remember getting to the chopper. I remember getting loaded in. And then I remember nothing until landing where I, I was rushed from the chopper into a building and then I woke up in a bed um, in Talil. Yeah, right. So you uh, so you jump. Uh, they obviously you harbour up, call the the nine liner in. Uh, AMEs come in, picked you up, uh, flown you back to Talil. Is there a roll? Yep. Faci- was there a roll facility there? Roll two. There was there was something they couldn't do much. They yeah. very crudely stitched up my neck and my lip. Yeah, they actually glued my eyes shut because oh, um, they didn't have the facilities to do it there. So yep, I woke up in in Talil and I was only awake for half an hour, not even that, before I was off to Baghdad and then on to Germany. Yep. But I woke up the OC and the CSM next to me and, you know, they were they were chatting because Alpha Company, was we were a really close company. Yeah. Everyone knew each other. Everyone was friendly. It was great. And the CSM and OC, I've never come across anyone as, as that cared as much about their men as them. Yeah, cool. That's, um, that's good to I hear. Met, sorry? I said that's good to hear, especially from an officer – an officer yeah. to, to look after the men like that. Yeah, Maddie, Maddie Campbell and uh, Scott Allen. They were Scott's shout, name. Shout out. Um, so for, for various reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but like the, the last thing that he said when he left the room, he leant in close and he's like, he goes, we're going to get these cunts over. And then he, he walked out and two of my mates came in who weren't on the patrol with us and, you know, they they kind of, we got to, they got to say hello, spend a bit of time with me before I left. And obviously we were trying to keep it lighthearted. And I, um, 300 was a big thing. Yeah, it was. was yep. It seems for more than just us, yeah. I guess. But, uh, you know, I've gone, oh, it's only an eye. I've got a spare. And we laughed a little bit, but we, it was forced. Yeah. Everyone really upset and sad and it, it, it couldn't be, couldn't be helped. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mate, you in uh, so you fly from Talil to Baggers, Baggers out mm-hmm. to Germany, um, and obviously Germany's where they do all the. Yeah, fuck, run us through, run us through. You obviously get into Germany, so obviously you're in Germany, yeah, and so I don't remember flying to Baghdad. Yep, with my size, you know, 120 kilos, I, they didn't give me enough anaesthetic, and I woke up on the way to Germany. Uh, Waking up, covered in tubes and shit, I panicked, grabbed something and pulled it and then screamed because yeah. it was the cafe. Oh, fuck. Yeah. They had, like, it coming out hurt. It going back in, oh. worse. <laughs> worse. So I actually met one of the medics on that flight years and years later, like only a few years ago. 
I, I came across one of the medics that was actually there and we laughed quite hard about it, actually. <laughs> but we got to uh, lunch still? But Hamburg or lunch? Like, no, lunch still. Yep. Where the, the American military hospital is. So. Yeah. Um, they didn't have the facilities to operate on my eye there, so uh, I kind of just had to hang around with hardly any painkillers because once I got to Hamburg, I'd go straight to surgery. Mm. So it was like a 20-minute drive, maybe 30 minutes, worst like worst 20 minutes of my life. People talk about pain in numbers, but this is like mega hurt. It was so bad. Yeah, especially yeah, eyes. Like, fuck, I just can't. I can't imagine. Honestly, I can't imagine it. Well, I mean, everything hurt. I had a, a shrapnel wound on my left um, bicep as well. Just a, it was like a circular piece of shrapnel was just embedded there. Um, curiously, that hurt more than anything. I did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I'm I'm screaming at the guy driving me. I'm abusing them. I don't even know if he spoke English. I was not a happy camper. Yeah. Um. But we get there, they figure out what they're going to do. I go straight into surgery. Uh, surgery was 21 hours, I think. 21 uh, hours? Yeah. Fucking so they, hell. they had to open the stitches from my neck and my lip and redo all that um, and remove as much shrapnel and, and dirt and metal flakes as they could. Yep. Uh, the left eye was enucleated, so they took that out. And the right eye, they did what they could to save it. Uh, which involved them kind of draining some of the aqueous jelly, the white stuff, mm-hmm. and replacing silicon oil. Um, they took out, I think they took the cornea and stitched everything back. Mm. So, but I um, I woke up, mum and dad are there because, you know, they, I mean, how they got there is a story unto itself, actually. But oh, yeah? They, oh, yeah. They, they, they were getting posted. Dad was getting posted from Broome to Kananara. So they were having their leaving party. Oh, shit. So they're getting ready for the party and, and the car rocks up and mum's like, oh, someone's here early because it's broom. Broom's got a thing called broom time. People yep. just do what they want on their time. So they're like, someone's coming early. So mum goes to the door and opens it and sees. Military. They did it like this. It was a stupid oh. thing. They, they could have done it much more subtly. There's <laughs> this dude in a military uniform with a priest walking up. Oh, the no. They just thought the worst. Why would they do that? I don't know. It's, <laughs> maybe it's what they thought. They, I don't know. Oh, it was no. a dumb oh. mum screaming like, no, 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 get away, get away. And dad's come to the door and, you know, he's a cop. He's done the doorknob yeah. many times. Yeah. He's fortified himself. He's, he's like, Deb, I'll take care of this. So he speaks to them and the first thing they say is that he's not dead. <laughs> And mum's like, why the fuck have you brought a priest with you? Yeah. <sighs> so, they, yeah, they told him that. that <laughs> this is awesome. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. The leaving party turned into their friends kind of helping support them. Yeah. Luckily, one of the females, one of the female cops in Broome, um, Linda, her name was, uh, ex, ex-army. Yeah. So she starts calling everyone. Mm. I mean, everyone, to the point where the army had to reach out to my mum and dad and say, you need to tell your friend to stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know who she called, but she must have a bit of a, a, a swing. Yeah. 
Fucking hell. I can't believe they turn up with a priest. What were they fucking thinking? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's only one time you do that, and it's obviously when someone passes, but fucking hell. I'm North Force guys as well, so. Yeah. The reservists, they do things how they do well, things. Well, it's it. He's like, fuck yeah. This is going to be our first job. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. So your parents fucking thought you died. Obviously, eventually they're like, no, he's just been involved in an incident, IED, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Did they Did they explain to your parents what happened, like to the extent nope. of no, nope. nothing, just like you've been involved in an IED? Uh, yeah. He's in Germany uh, getting surgery. Yeah, I, I think I would have been on the way to Baghdad when this happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, gotcha, yep. Left Baghdad. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were obviously informed on the day. Um, it would have been that afternoon. And I think by the following day, they were flying to Germany. Yeah, right. So they're on, on a flight, uh, head out to Germany. And at what stage did they get there? Where, where, like, so you've done your 21-hour surgery. You wake up. Um, what, what are you told? Like, What are the surgeons telling you or the doctors? And I, I was still asleep. Oh, okay. Woke, oh, shit. Yep. I woke up to mum and dad coming in the room. That's when oh, I did you? Up. Oh, shit. And so you've you still, you still got no idea of your extent of your injuries? No idea. Yep. And no one bloody speaks English. They all speak German. <laughs> <laughs> like they thought the army gave them this, um, I can't, I don't remember his name. I think he was from the Navy. He may have been Air Force. He was like a an attachment to mum and dad. He was there to obviously to lay the groundwork for them getting there. He was going to coordinate everything on the ground. Um, but he didn't speak German either. Oh. So I don't know what they thought they were achieving by attaching him to mum and dad because he was just as clueless as us. <laughs> like, so that they, they get there and they, I heard them come into the room, I heard their voice and I'm coming out of it and mum's stuttering and I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. And then that was the worst thing I could have said because it's supposed to be the other way around. Yeah. Mum recognised this and started sobbing and crying and it was – Really great for them to be there. I think if I had woken up or come around without them there, it would have been so much harder. Yeah, oh, exactly. But then the worst thing started happening. I started screaming. I was in the worst pain. Like the pain I was in was worse than the freaking drive to the hospital. Oh, shit. I'm 6'2". Yeah. German people are massive. Yeah. <laughs> Quite what 1950s and 1960s movies will have you believe. <laughs> but um, so – Throughout the entire 21 hours, my foot, my heel was laying on the bed rail. So where the heel was laying on the rail, no blood had gotten there. Oh, no. Well, more than 21 hours. So because I moved my leg, blood came rushing back into that little spot and, oh, my God. Yeah, sharp pain. Oh, yeah, but it lasted for like a good hour. I'm screaming. So they've run me off for emergency x-rays and they're like, we don't know what's happened. And then they look at my foot and they see this massive red mark there and that's when they realise what had actually happened. So they had to get a nurse from two floors up to come down and explain to us why I was in pain Yeah, and explain to us what this, what happened with the surgery. And that was when we learned the extent of, of the damage to my eyes. So. Yeah, <sighs> fuck. You know, fuck, you're only a young, young fellow at this stage too. With your parents there too, so that just makes it even more emotional, I suppose. When they when they told you basically uh, to the extent of the injury, what, what was it, what was the thoughts? 
Well, they they said you know obviously the left eye was gone and the right eye um, was was barely there. They've done what they can. I'll speak to the set specialist the next day and he'll give me proper information. But I knew my military career was over. Yeah, of course. I knew yeah, that was yeah. it for me, and I was devastated. Even though I joined, you know, I had no plans, life like lifelong plans to join. Once I got there, th- that was me. Mm. I was, I was the life. I loved it. Oh, it's a fucking good time, isn't it? Being in the military, yeah, and knowing that was gone, it was crushing, devastating. Fuck, see, see, that's crazy. You know, you lose your sight, but you're more worried about fucking, you know, your career ending in the military. Only for a few hours because we got a call from the chief of army. Oh yeah, and he said, "We're taking care of you. You're not discharging. You're in." Yeah, we will make sure that you are taken care of and that you will stay in the military, and that put me at ease. Obviously. Peter should not have said that, mm. and I don't blame him for it. He was saying what he thought he should say to comfort a soldier. Yeah. And even though he was my direct commander, he, I'm st- I was still a soldier. Every soldier was his soldier. Mm. He cared about every soldier. Um, but it's that helped me a bit. It helped me deal with what was happening in Germany on the ground at the time. Um, and we kind of we came to terms with that. Then they come in to give me food and stuff like that, and they don't speak English, like I said. I don't speak German. Yeah, yeah, German. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they hand me this, how dare I not know how to speak German? <laughs> like, they hand me this this pudding cup, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? I tried to feed myself, not nah, pudding everywhere, all on my face. Yeah. The uh, so mum's like helping me guide the spoon in my mouth, and then I, I the nurse is like tapping my foot. And I've stopped and she goes, that's good. And I just put my thumb up, like thumbs up. Yeah. It's good. Okay. Guess what I ate for the entire time until we found someone that speaks English to speak to the fucking caterers. (laughs) Pudding? Yeah. They were asking me if that's all I wanted. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Like, oh. Oh, no. Like after the first couple of days, I said to mum, can you go and find someone who speaks English? Yeah. I think she went had to go three or four floors up this time, mm. brought them down, and I'm like, you speak English? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I speak English. And it was good. It was good English. So I said, can you please go and find out why I'm only getting freaking pudding, this chocolate mousse stuff? And the guy zips off and he comes back 20 minutes later and he's like, but that's what you said you wanted. And I went, No. <laughs> don't speak don't speak German. I don't know what I said or what they said. Can you please just tell them to give me food, normal food? Yeah. And, and then it was fine after that. So <laughs> Oh fuck, if things couldn't get worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus. So you you're laying there in hospital. Again, your emotions are fucking up and down. How how are your parents, you know, they, to see their son? Like this, you know, injured, I suppose. You know, I've got kids, mate, so I know what it's like. Even when they get the flu, mate, I'm pretty fucking pissed off at the world. I'm like, fuck, yeah. fuck you, God. <laughs> well, they did They did the best they could. Mm. Um, they had no experience with blind people, so even them learning how to guide me around was, you know, they did They did the best they could. Yeah. When I was healthy enough to be released from the hospital and do day trips, you know, we'd go out because it was just, it was depressing sitting in that room. Mm. So we go out and I've got my little IV bag and the little pole and we walk around the little town and they were there. All they wanted to do was make sure that I was happy, mm. that I was okay. 
because um, obviously I'd seen the specialist by this point and he'd given me my first fake eye, which was painful, very painful. He told me that I probably would see out of the, the real eye that yep. I've got. Yeah. Um, that he had to see the top or top line or the second line of an eye chart. And I was like, that's awesome. That's, that's great. I'm not going to live the rest of my life in darkness. Mm. And even at this point, I, I, I wasn't even opening my eye because it was that sensitive to light. Yeah. So I'm walking around with my eyes shut with big Stevie Wonder bloody glasses on. Yeah. And that we had to buy from somewhere. Um, they had to go and buy me clothes because the hospital had nothing that fit. And the uh, when I got back to the, the Lunch Still Military Hospital, they struggled to find stuff that fit me there. I think they had a pair of like tartan check-in pajama pants. Yeah. Me, but nothing else. Um, I ended up having to buy a shirt that said um, FC UK on it or something. <laughs> like a fat- <laughs> yeah, right. But it was, it was, they, they supported me the best they could. Yeah. And the military supported them as best they could. So. Yeah, yeah. And then you returned back to Australia on, or back to Western Australia, 1st of June, back back home, back to your parents' house? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, not to their house, to, back to Perth. So I, I spent a week at the hospital and then another week at the military hospital. Okay. Um, oh, they, <laughs> they, gave, they do the wounded warrior packs. It's like you get a bag of clothes, you get a DVD player and some DVDs <laughs> to keep yourself. <laughs> Obviously, I got, I had CDs. Yeah. They had a heap of, I was a punk rock kind of kid, so they yep. had a heap of punk stuff and they had Dropkick Murphys. Yeah. And I didn't know how to work. I was just pressing buttons and I put the CD in and I'm pressing buttons and obviously I've skipped a few songs. The first song that came up that played was The Greenfields of France. Oh, fuck. Yeah, depressing. I was bored. <laughs> just happened to be the song that played. Oh, no. But, yeah, so we we uh, got to, le- left Tampa, uh, Lunch still went to the the airport, uh, which was frustrating in itself because I had to be in a wheelchair. Yep, and all, all I had to do was just walk around. Um, but the defence had basically booked an entire first class cabin for just us. So we we flew home in in comfort. Uh, or they flew home in comfort. Um, I didn't want to wake anyone up when they were sleeping, so I missed my pain medication time. Oh, fuck. Uh, so I kind of waited until mum and dad had rested enough before I had to kind of stutter to mum to do the tablets for me. Because I, obviously I was sleeping because of medication. Mm. I don't know how much they slept. So I did not want them to be awake during the trip home. I wanted them to be comfortable and just rest. Yeah. I cannot imagine what they went through. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. For fucking hell. Um, but yeah, landed Landed 1st of June, um, public holiday weekend in WA at the airport in Perth. We were met by my best mate at the time uh, and some family members, my my sisters, uh, sorry, well, one of my sisters and um, my, well, who would become my girlfriend for, um, for a while when we were there. Yeah. Everyone hugged and kissed and everyone was glad to have me home and then we went off to a hotel in the city and, Stayed there overnight, and then it all began the next day. The whole recovery rehab process. Yeah, just just a question on the on the recovery, mate. What's the reason why they sent you? Oh fuck, um, it's probably a stupid question. No questions are stupid questions. What they used to say in the army. Remember that? Mm. <laughs> this is probably a stupid question, mate. Why did they send you back to WA? Is obviously just because you couldn't see? 
I thought, you know, you would have went to back to the battalion and did your recovery. I wanted to be home with my family yeah. and support, um, which was hard because I wanted to go back. Yeah. Uh, but I needed to – I mean, I knew there was so much stuff I'd have to learn to do all mm. over again. Um, so the Army spoke to WA police and got data posting in Perth. Fuck. Uh, yep. That's so he good. was posted to, I think, Fremantle in Perth. So we, we stayed in hotels for a bit, and then they found a place for us at the Patch. Yep. Just by Swanbourne Barracks. Um, so that's where that's where we moved in until I left to go to Melbourne. So I think we were there a year and a bit for recovery. Was there any uh, further sur- eye surgeries or anything, or that was it? Yep, 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 yep. yep. So the, obviously the, the, the fake eye they gave me in Germany was just a, like a sliver of plastic, basically. Yeah. It was there to make sure the hole didn't, me, the hole didn't close up and reseal, yep. which often will happen if you don't have an implant in there. So the first surgery was in the real eye. Um, they had to go in just to see what the damage was, which we did. Um, they had to put a retinal band on there. So your retina, people think it's like a floppy nerve ending, but it's not. It's, it's like an umbrella. Mm-hmm. So where the retina was attached to the, the end of it, like the umbrella part had snapped a little bit. So the, ret- the retinal band goes in to kind of secure that. But after the surgery, the guy, the doctor said, look, you're not going to see anything. I don't know why they told you that in Germany, but you're not going to see a single thing. Yeah. You'd be lucky to get light perception, which crushed me. Mm. Absolutely devastated me. Uh, and then I, I start, you know, the rehab process, learning how to shave, shower, go to the toilet, how to clean myself, how to use that the white cane. Um. So I did that for a while, and, and then I had the second surgery, which was on the fake eye. They basically go in and they put like a – it's a synthetic coral. Mm-hmm. But they put it in the cavity and they graft your muscles to it. So when your muscles move, this this synthetic ball thing moves, and it makes your uh, your eye move like a normal eye. Yeah. So they, they put that in, and then they, they send me away to a prosthesis specialist for eyes and – they pour this disgusting, cold, plastic, gooey stuff into your head, and when they pull it out, it, it's literally uh, it's, it's a mold of your eye, or, or, or well, of what would be your future eye. Yeah. So to describe it best, picture like a ping pong ball that you crush, mm-hmm. so moon shape. Yeah, That's yeah, 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 right. What the fuck does look like? Yeah. Fucking hell. Um, just. Like just you know another question you know, like you know obviously over that year period you were in WA before you went to Melbourne, mm-hmm. how did you go teaching yourself how to do all this stuff? Was it was it a bit of a fucking grind? Oh fuck, you know again I we just can't imagine. It was it was I thought it was easy because it's you're in I mean how many times you do stuff in the dark in the army all the time? Oh yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. So a lot of it came as second second nature. But it's the mental stress, especially using the cane, because teaching yourself to use that, how to learn to to memorize paths and routes, how to know when the road is safe to cross, you've got to concentrate all the time. And this is before a lot of the you know the technology like technological aspect came through. I mean, I've got little gadgets now that will, if I point it at a at a doorway, it'll vibrate when it connects something. 
and it, it's same size as like a little USB thing. So I can use that to get around a house because it'll vibrate when it touches, when the laser comes into contact with a door or a, yep. or a chair. Or something. But back then, none of that stuff. So in order to kind of alleviate the mental stress, I picked up the guitar and taught myself that. So it became my escape from the recovery. So, and I mean, the recovery wasn't smooth as well. There was a lot of self-medicating at the time. Yeah. So like a lot. A lot of boozing. Basically. Yeah. And the, that's when the prescriptions, um, prescription pills, abusing them has started as well. But I didn't know it at the time because I was the army's little post boy. Yeah. I was the radio, I was in papers, I was in TV, and I thought I had to be happy and I had to promote this narrative that I was being taken care of and that I was smiley and happy-go-lucky and recovery was going great, but it wasn't. I just wasn't dealing with anything. I created this mask that I thought I had to wear and eventually you wear a mask so long you think it's real and then eventually it crumbles away. Yeah. And you're left feeling a resent resentment to the people that forced you to wear or made you feel like you had to wear the mask and and b you're angry at yourself because you've tricked yourself Allowed you've managed to for years yeah so. did you during this time did were you seeing a psychologist or any did the army supply anything i yeah i had to do a ptsd course here in perth but it, my psychiatrist at the time said we're only putting you on the course because the army wants you to do the course you don't need this course at the moment PTSD is someone who's gone through something and it's it's affecting them far later in life and it's preventing them from moving forward and doing things. <laughs> and for you, like for, or for me, obviously, it's it wasn't the fact that I had PTSD or anything. It's the fact that I just wasn't dealing with it. I just ignored this. It's like I ignored the whole thing. Yeah. Isn't, isn't- I thought moving on with life was recovery, but that's not what recovery is. Yeah. That's a bit of an odd thing for a psychiatrist to say. He is an odd psychiatrist. He's one of the best in WA for PTSD issues. Yeah. And he, he, he does a lot here. He was him and his um, one of his colleagues were responsible for setting up the PTSD program here. Yeah. And I, I think what he meant is that there was no need for me to do this course. There was he could have continued to see me on a weekly basis and it would have been fine. Mm. But doing this course was not something I needed at the time. Yeah. And the reason we were doing it is because the Army wanted me to do it. Yeah. Probably, it yeah. was like they had a little checklist of yeah, oh, what yeah. I had to do in order to move to the next thing. Yeah, no, no doubt. That's that's what the Army does best. Um, and yeah. Just quickly, mate, obviously we, t- we chat about it in the intro. Uh, you said you're a bit of a poster boy. <laughs> I'm looking at this image right now. <laughs> it's not blurred. Oh, it's not blurred it's anymore. Not blur- I, found, I found an unblurred version that I, I will be yeah. sharing. <laughs> anyway, I remember this. I remember when it came out in the local local rag, you were being uh, held up by, oh, well, I shouldn't say held up, being walked by, escorted by a couple of young boys. Yep. Um, sure. You're in the middle. Your last name's Haven. Yep. The bloke on your left, his name's Dick. Yep. <laughs> and the bloke on the right, his name is Ball. Yep. Now, I thought this was an absolute fucking stitch up. But no, it turns out it no. wasn't, so it is a, a dick ball haven. <laughs> yep. Safe place for the groin. <laughs> oh, absolute classic. I'll, de- I'll definitely put this up. It was in the army rag. 
but this one, I think I found this one on news.com.au of all, all places. Yeah. Well, it was during the Welcome Home Parade when they got back from Iraq. Yeah. Um, it was based in Perth. They'd fly me over for big events at the battalion. Yeah. Um, when was actually, so when they, sorry, just when was the first time you got to see the boys again? Uh, that trip. Yeah. Oh, was it? Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, shit. So far out. So they, they all got back and there was, I think the parade was a couple of days later. So um, we got to the battalion. They presented my medals and stuff to me. Uh, I got to hang around with everyone. Mum and Dad had already met some of the boys before when they came to Brizzy. Um, so it was good for them to say to, to see everyone. There was hugs and tears and then they had this parade. So we're all hanging around there. No one really knows what's going on as all these things go. But I've got this this white cane and I had to wear sunglasses because obviously my eyes were still super sensitive. Mm. So we're getting ready and, and we hear this voice behind us. What the fuck is that? You can't walk around with them in your pocket and take those sunglasses off. Oh, fuck they got off. As that it was me. He thought it was just some digger. Yeah. And this particular guy, he was, he was an RP and he was known for following rules to a T. And when he realised, apparently, as the boys described it, his face went pale white and he, he turned and he, he apologised and, and turned and walked off. But it was, um, it was a good parade. I mean, it was to hear everyone cheering for everyone, for the, the boys that had come home, mm. it, was, it was a feeling that they probably didn't think very well when they picked Dicko and Bawley to, um, <laughs> to guide. <laughs> and, I mean... Bully is a happy like happy go lucky dude. Dicko is as well, but he can also be quite blunt and abrupt. Yeah, we're walking at the front of the parade, um, and there's all these news reporters trying to ask questions, and Dicko is muttering "fuck off, fuck off, fuck off," and he's lucky no one heard him because I think he would have been told off or something like that. But we ended up going from the parade to like a reception. Um, Prime Minister and the opposition leader and all the politicians were there. Um, Kevin Rudd was walking around, shaking his hand, shaking everyone's hand and introducing himself. Yeah. He introduced himself to Dicko like three times, just, which just goes to show that some politicians don't actually care. care. They're just there. I know. They're just there for the fucking just. Kissing baby, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin 07. <laughs> uh, I don't. <laughs> You can you can judge whether or not you want this in. <laughs> no, I'm fucking leave it all in. Fuck, I hate politicians came, and I hate the government. To Iraq, uh, with the outgoing GG. Yeah. Because we Quinton Bryce. Quinton Bryce. No, no, no. It was the infantry guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, two thousand eight. So, but Kevin's Kevin's there. We'd just gotten back from like a three or four day patrol. We stank bad. Kevin comes down to Alpha Company and he's shaking hands and I went, uh, <laughs> started laughing. And my mate goes, what? And I turned around and put my hand down my pants. <laughs> and then he's like, hey, don't, dude, don't. And I'm like, yep, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah. Oh, fuck. I like to think that he got it all over his little blow dryer. <laughs> he's a fucking Gee, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the government. Mate, so you get posted to uh, Melbourne, you said? Yeah, so they the Army assigned this dude named Ron Tattersill to 
to uh, be in charge of the Army Casualty Unit. Mm-hmm. So at the time, there was only two of us, me and Mick Lydiard. Um, but what the Army didn't count on is the ego of this dude. What he said went. It doesn't matter what you wanted. You had to do what he said. Yeah. He's telling me that, oh, we're going to field promote you. We're going to do this. I'm like, no, you're not. What do you mean? There's no field promotions. You need to do a course, and I can't do the course. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'll talk to someone, and, you know, it means you'll get a better pension. I'm like, Lance Corp, the pay up from Lance Corp, from, um, from private to Lance Corp, was not a lot. I don't know what you're even talking about, dude. Yeah. And so obviously that never happened, but he had this idea. He's like, oh, I did, I did legs. He did Chinese or Mandarin or something, you know, 100 years ago because um, he was a Vietnam guy. And he, he sent me to Langs. I didn't want to go. It was known I didn't want to go. I was pushing my, you know, my reservations up the chain, but it stopped at him. He was telling the RSMA and Chief of Army at the time, Peter Lay, that I wanted to be there. Yeah. That I had a decision I wanted to go. So I get there and I'm, get, I'm getting told that, you know, I'm going to do with language course and then I'm going to get posted to Canberra at DSD, a career path I did not want any part of. Mm. Um, but at that same time is when I crumbled. I was in a very volatile relationship, um, completely and utterly toxic with the girlfriend. Um, I was the drinking and the abusing, abusing the Prescription meds yep. was bad. I, you know, I'd I'd rock up to Langs, either still drunk or stinking of the bottle of piss that I drank the night before. No one said a thing. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is like, he's gone through hell. Keep your mouth shut. Just let Not it happen. The best thing to do. Yeah. Um, eventually, I got called down on it by a psych nurse that was assigned to my case. Um. And I, I admitted myself to Ward 17 uh, at Heidelberg, uh, which is the, the rehab unit. Um, so I was in there with a heap of other guys that were going through PTSD issues and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and that was the first, the first time I really had to look at myself and say, hey, I'm not okay. Yeah. I, with this, I haven't, I've, I've run from it for years to wear this stupid mask. Now the mask is gone. I need to start making changes. Yeah. So the first thing, obviously, was stop the booze. Not completely. I just wanted to be able to control myself again, which took a while and there was relapses, but now I can have a single drink and I'm fine. Um, there was realising that abusing the prescription medications doesn't just put me at risk, it puts my guide dog at risk. Yep. Uh, I passed out on the floor. I woke up and there was a chewed up packet of pills there with vomit next to it. Oh, fuck. So- yeah, luckily Omi, um, he didn't he didn't die. He got a bit sick, but that was the moment. That was one of the clarity things, the epiphany that all alcoholics like to talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm like, I quite clearly don't care about myself, but I'm in charge. I've got I'm I'm responsible for him. Yeah. This this whole another life. It doesn't matter that it's a dog, but I mean, as you, you know, like guys in the military who handle dogs have this attachment. And oh fuck it's yeah. A, Someone handling a guide dog, you had this attachment. He was my best mate until he died. So. Mm. Fucking hell, that's uh, 
That's heavy. So you you get through your rehab, the rehab uh, th- that works. It did. It is this did. Some, is this a military rehab uh, facility or is it a it was, uh, or was it a civvy one? Civvy it run. Is, but it's got a military unit where Doctor Doctor John Wardell. Yep, he's another one of the leading PTSD kind of guys. Um, so yeah, he admitted me there. Um, I was there with other military people. Um, so they, they helped. I'd, I'd continue going there as an outpatient for about a year. But one of the first things on my list to kind of correct my path was to finally get something done about what was happening with my career. Um, so what they used to do at this time was have these wounded soldier conferences, yeah. I think wounded ill conferences. Um, and they'd, the hierarchy, the military brass would go around and we'd get one-on-one time, we'd get to chat with them. And some things that we brought up never got, um, nothing ever happened. Um, uh, like the the idea of an Australian Purple Heart got brought up all the time yeah. or even bringing stuff like Battle Stripes, but never, never eventuated. Um, I think the Army didn't want to exclude people who weren't injured overseas, which at no. the end of the day, I don't need recognition for being injured. It was no. just... It's something physical because, like, the amount of times I've been asked questions, how are you, yeah. how are those doors when you can't see? I'm like, I wasn't born blind. Like, this happened from service. So something simple like that means that they can see that medal or that battle stripe and know either not to ask a question or they know how to not to upset you or something like that. It was just a small thing, never happened. But one of the things that did happen um, and this affected both myself and Michael Lydiard and every other casualty going forward. I got a chance to speak to Peter Lay and I told him, I don't want to be in Melbourne. I don't want to do this. Mm. I wanted to go to, I want to go to uni. I want to do something that I want to do. And he, he pulled me aside and he was a little bit angry and he, he, he said, I thought you wanted this. And I went, no, I haven't wanted this from the start. I never wanted this. And he was onto it straight away. Yeah. He, this guy, this Ron guy, he was told to stay away from me. Yeah, right. He, he bailed me up at a later conference, cornered me and was kind of trying to intimidate me. Um, and he was, he was basically told to leave. Um, the one officer who was there with me whisked me away and he, she apologised and he, she basically said that there will be repercussions for what he just did. but. Mm. He was told to stay away from this and we were assigned someone new. And this new person, her job was basically to to figure out what we wanted to do going forward and how defence was going to facilitate this. And this is when the whole veterans or casualties going to university thing came about, um, which later turned into the Veterans Transitioning Program. Yep, yep. So I think Mick Lydiard went to uni and did um, occupational therapy. I think, and then I think he might have gone on to do psych as well, and I went to do community services, uh, welfare and development, and then counselling. Yeah, right. Dropped out of counselling, though. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> no, you, you go to uni, they've got to convert all their books. Yeah. So you, oh, yeah, fuck Braille. Did you, but, sorry, did you have to teach yourself how to read, obviously? No. No. <laughs> fuck, you just, no. Nah. Hey. Because of the guitar and from when I was a renderer, I've got lime burns on my fingers and stuff like that. So my my nerve endings are shot. There was no way I was reading Braille. Yeah. No, fuck. That's what te- technology. 
2022, exactly. Yeah, you technology. Know. Yeah, so. Uh, but, yeah, yeah so- I had to leave the counselling course because in order to get the books converted to a digital format, you've got to buy the books and then bring the books to the school, to their accessibility unit or whatever they are. But I was six weeks in before I got my first digital book. Yeah. And for a counselling degree is like a psychology degree. So one of the units was Psych 105. I got like a year's worth of credit from the previous course. Yeah, right. Starting second year. And you're expected to read a chapter a week. One chapter is double-sided, 20 double-sided A4 A4 pages. So by the time I get my book, I'm six chapters behind. There's no way I'm recovering this. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that I was in front of, because for some reason that's the only book I got early, was bloody philosophy. Yeah. That I picked as just a random extra unit that I could do. Yeah. So when I realised this, I'm like, no, I'm out. I, I left uni. And I, I hung around in Melbourne for a bit and then um, I got some bad news from a doctor and decided that I'm, I'm gone, I'm out. So Discharge it. Mate, can you just hold on one second? I'm just going to go grab yeah. a bottle of water. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I might fill mine up as well. Sorry, mate, I'm back. Oof. Making me run. Jesus Christ. Um, oh, fuck. I'm out of breath now. <laughs> <laughs> Getting fat and old. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm about 120, I'm 120 kilos as well. Yeah, I think I'm... I think I plateaued out at like 117-ish. Yeah. I guess, 17, 18. Just rocking the Most, d- dad bod. Although I can't, can't do that. <laughs> so you put your discharge in 2015? Yeah. yeah Just like, so fuck I, it, that's enough? Obviously, basically, I, this I is seven. Out. Sorry. So this is seven years, seven years post-injury. Yeah. Yeah. So I found, found out some information about my injury that no one mentioned at all. Because I'd, I'd go and see this doctor in Melbourne um, for like a yearly checkup or six monthly checkup, but I, I kept asking him, you know, what is there anything coming up in the future? Any any surgeries? Any anything? Because I hear stories or read read stories of the pardon me in the paper, you know, about robotic eye stuff and all these gadgets, and I'm like, how come I don't have any of this stuff? Um, even I even went to see a, a, an optometrist, um, optom- optometrist. Yep. A specialist version, so not like an ophthalmologist, but they specialize in glasses and contact lenses and stuff. So I was wearing a very thick contact lens in the real eye and glasses over the top. 
And all it did was make blurry things a little less blurry. Yeah. Which, even if it helps 1%, it's still helping. It was just an effort and very painful because, as you can imagine, my eye is not the same shape as an eye should be. It's quite bumpy and ridged and there's hard spots and soft spots and stuff like that. Yeah. So the doctor, the specialist is going, no, there's nothing. There's not, nothing coming up, no surgeries, no gadgets. We just have to keep, you know, keep checking up and then just hope for the best. And I'm like, I don't accept that. I don't accept that at all. So I requested a, a second opinion. So the army booked me a, an appointment with a, another specialist on the other side of Melbourne. And I remember sitting in the car on the way home, the warrant officer in charge of my recovery there, Heike Brown, wonderful woman. I will always be thankful for how she handled my case. Um, I'm crying in the car, just just whimpering. Because um, the doctor that I saw, he goes, oh, no, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing I'd want to do because, you know, you, you'll, you'll lose what you've got. And I'm yeah. like, what do you mean I've got? And he goes, has no one told you this? No one told me what? And he goes, you will lose your sight. I went, what? And he goes, what you've got, like, that's not going to last. It could be tomorrow or it could be a year or it could be 10 years. One day that'll go. And no one had mentioned this <laughs> ever. Yeah, right. No one said a fucking single thing. And at first I was angry mm. and the anger was rage and it simmered away and then I just got really depressed. Like... The, the sight I've got, they only say it's about 2%. Yep. And the way I used to describe it in the early interviews was like um, if you put like a plastic bag over your eyes and go diving in murky water or something like that, that's really all it was. It's not enough to, you know, I don't know what my wife looks like. I don't know what my tattoos look like. Mm. But I know the shape of a car or I know the shadow caused by a door or a window or something like that. It's it's hard to do. Explain because it's my entire life now. I'm used to it, and I know how to use the very little I can see to my advantage. Yeah, losing that it'll kill me. Mm. It, it's just it's like losing an arm, and then ten years later using the other one. It's it would just kill you. <laughs> yeah, fuck. God. I, I I cracked it. Got home. Um, Heike hugged me, which is very rare for someone of her position to do, mm. but she knew exactly what I needed and she was quite happy to give it to me. Um, and then I said to her, I'm, I'm, I want to go home. And when I say say, I'm mumbling it because I'm crying. I just said, I, I want to go home. And she goes, do you really? And I went, yep, yep, I do. And within a week, the discharge process had started. Um, and then January 2015, I was, I was out. Fuck. That's it. End of the career, 2015. How were the emotions there? Um, Just because you, sure. you have to look after yourself now. <laughs> yeah, obviously, but I've been living by myself in Melbourne. Yeah. So I, for a blind person, I – and this will probably annoy some people or it might come out wrong, but I don't get along with a lot of blind people. Um, I lived alone. I like doing things myself, being independent. Yet I, I know blind people who will drop a glass or they'll drop or they'll spill coffee and they'll freeze and they'll wait for someone else to clean it up for them. Yeah. 
And to me, I'm just like, no, I understand that coping with losing sight is different, very different. It's, it's night and day for some people. But you have to learn how to be independent if you want to. Everything for me after I went to rehab was, you know, I really had to learn to move past my shortfalls and improve myself and kind of, you know, get over it, to conquer it. Yeah. But so coming back to Perth and living by myself, the only thing that was different was the umbilical cord to the green was cut, was gone. Yeah. And for the last few years living in Melbourne, going to uni and doing all the charity stuff I was doing, it wasn't like I was a real defence member anyway. Like I had I dyed my hair black and red for a period. I was going to uni and doing whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. And I would mean being mech downgraded, I wasn't allowed to take leave or anything like that. I kept accruing it, but I all I needed to do was tell defence I was going to Perth and away I go to Perth. Yeah. Or if I was going to visit friends. So I did have to request um, for permission to do that walk that I did from Sydney to Canberra because that was during the last two weeks of a, of my uni course. Mm-hmm. So, and being as I was being paid by defence to go to uni, I kind of needed permission. But it was also during the work experience phase, so I used working or doing the project for the charity as the work experience for that part of the course. Yeah, gotcha. And this is where you met. Tony? No, no, no. I didn't meet Tony until I got to Perth. Oh, yeah, right. So you moved to so you moved back back out to Perth. Yep. Uh, uh, meet Tony. Uh, run us through the next you know chapter of your life. Um, I I met Tony at a birthday party, maybe like a week or so after I got home. Um, she was with she had a boyfriend, and I'd only just gotten back, and you know we connected, and there was a spark. But she, as I said, she got a boyfriend, and I got. I started dating someone else about a month later mm. and we didn't connect back up again until the end of the year, really, um, where she'd moved to New Zealand. Oh, we're talking on Facebook and I'm like, where have you, where'd you go? Where'd you disappear to? Oh, love of my life, <laughs> basically doing all the, trying to whisper sweet nothings into a computer screen. <laughs> um, but it turns out, yeah, she moved to New Zealand and took a job as an air hostess with Air New Zealand. Oh, yeah, right. Year of our relationship was long distance, yeah, oh, um, which was good because it made us strong. Um, it was very hard. I kind of kind of got a sense of what some partners of military personnel may, may go through. Mm. If she'd get a stopover in Perth, maybe once a month or something like that, and at the I think the longest was eight weeks or nine weeks before we saw each other, but we were talking online and chatting a lot, um, and then keeping myself busy whilst I wasn't with her in Perth. I was helping set up Soldier on here in WA. Yeah, nice. And then so 2018 says here you lost uh, three family members and then you end up getting yeah. getting married that year as well. Yeah, so Tony moved back uh, 2016. Um, we moved in together and we lived in South Perth. Um, but we, we had to leave because I got attacked at the front of the house um, jumped by some meth heads or something. Fucking so it kind of spoiled it for us. Um, so we left left there. I'd already proposed to her at this stage. Um, so we, we'd moved to another place and spent a year there before getting married in 2018 and buying our own place in 2019. But 2018 was a hard year because it was the, the 10th anniversary of the incident. Yep. So you had that anniversary factor coming into play, but 
when I got home to Perth, my sisters were there, um, but, you know, they had their own lives. My parents were down in Albany, uh, which is a, a, a metro area down south, mm. like right south of WA. Um, so one of my grandmothers was, she'd come around almost every second day or so. And we'd go shopping, we'd go to, she'd take me out to lunch and we had this, we were very, very close. Um, and she got diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, I think November 2017, maybe December 2017. Um, and by January she was, she was gone. Yeah. Uh, and then my other grandma died and then my uncle died. <laughs> And then I had to go to, I had a hospital admission. Um, just, I just wasn't dealing. I was getting really angry. And having done all the work I did in Melbourne and having, you know, worked for veterans charities and I knew the signs. I knew what was happening straight away. So I pulled some strings and spent two weeks in the hospital. Um, just kind of decompressing, mm. which was the, the, I'm not prideful or anything. If you need to go, you need to go. That's exactly Exactly. Yeah, it's better than sitting at home, like blaming, like taking out all your frustration on your future wife. <laughs> yeah, two th- two thousand eighteen, mate. You get married. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was a really good day. Um, big, big party, massive party. All the guys from the battalion came. Some of my other mates that have been posted here to Perth, and some other friends that I've met whilst I've been back. Um, only had one one school friend there. She's a, a doctor that I've always been quite friendly with. Mm. Uh, but all my other schoolmates I don't really have in my life. Many because of how they treated me in high school. But yeah. When you're when you're in defense and you come home to your friends, you see like the highlight reel of them. Because you only hear you only see them for maybe a week, two yeah, weeks a year. Exactly. Exactly. So when I got home, I realized that everything I thought I knew was wrong. There was a, you know, big personality difference between me and them and I had to cut some people out and hard decision, but it was better for me that way. But you make new friends, so the wedding was full of everyone who we love and who loves us. Um, it was sad that my fam- the family who passed couldn't be there, but, um, you know, they all really loved Tony, which was which was good. Mm. Um and now Tony, she's got um, my grandmother's, my great grandmother's engagement ring as her eternity ring. Oh shit! She's got stones that my mum put into a bracelet from my other grandmother as mm. well. Uh, so she's she's got she's got their love always with her. Basically, yeah. oh, that's cool, mate. That's cool. Hey, just a quick question on DVA. How, how's the you know how they looking after you? You know, post separation. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I want to yeah. get the truth out there because, you know, you're probably one of the – I've only chatted to a couple of injured guys so far, uh, Curtis McGrath. I don't Curtis. I'm a yeah, 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 yeah. He's, he's, he's a good cunt. Um, yeah. yeah, mate. So, yeah, just give us a bit of a a bit of a you know, hot debrief on DVA and how they're doing things. Some paperwork for compensation when we first got to Perth. Um, it was 280000 Mm-hmm. Now I don't mind sharing that number, but I know guys that have hurt their shoulders and got over three hundred. Yeah, I know guys that have gotten four twenty. Um, at the time, I was told that that was the ca- that was it. That was the capacity that they could pay out. 
Um, oh, wait, no, maybe in 320. In between 280 and 320, something like that. Um, but they told me that I could sign this paperwork and Ron Tattersall was there getting me to sign it as well, so it was DVA and him. But they said that if things get worse, I'd still be able to to put in a claim for loss of future earnings or something like that to sue. That was a lie. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't allowed. And I didn't find that out until years later. Yeah. Um, they obviously pay for my medical stuff with the gold card and I get the little, uh, I get my pension from Super. But finding out now that I was lied to, that it wasn't the cap, that I, I can't get lots of future earnings, um, was a little, makes you angry a little bit. Oh, yeah, of course. Especially now with, with what goes on. I've got a, my condition's not changing. Yeah. But every year so, I've got to fill out more paperwork to get my services renewed. That doesn't make I'm fucking sense. Yet they don't give you a permanently impaired status. That's fucking You've got odd. To get your services reviewed every year or every two years or every five years. Like the amount of bureaucracy that they force veterans to go through is just disgusting. It's, yeah, it's especially well, when it's a clear cut fucking case. Like it's clear yeah. fucking cut case. And you got some of these fuckwits out there that have spent time in fucking Dubai and they claim PTSD and choke up the fucking system. Yeah. So. Well, the, one of the worst things is it's the vendors as well. So the guy who I have here in Perth who does my gardening, great guy, fantastic. Mm. Um, and he, he, he goes above and beyond. He's got an allocated amount of money per month I'm allowed to spend on gardening and guttering and stuff yeah. like that. But if he needs to do more, he'll do more. If he needs to fix a tap or a sprinkler, he doesn't doesn't charge any extra. DVA didn't pay him for like four months. <laughs> and I was like, they can't do this. I had to call people and find out what the hell was going on. And this happened just as the the guy in charge of DVA, I think this was like a year ago or two years ago or something, was talking about having to allocate funds from one spot to another spot to make in, make up the shortfall in claims and the fact that they've got all these hundreds and hundreds and thousands of claims coming in from the mass exodus and they need they wanted to work through them so they're sacrificing paying the vendors so they can pay for people to process the claims which it's their job to process the claims anyway i don't understand why it takes 18 months to process a claim yeah it doesn't make sense no. The government throws money at the veteran industry because it's it's massive. Yeah, the charities I was working for, um, and I, I I I left that industry because it's toxic as hell. A charity, by definition, is an organisation or a service that fills a hole in a system. Until that system corrects, mm. it is a charity's job to literally work themselves out of work. But because veterans is such a big industry. The government flings money at them. They'll do everything they can to stay in business. Yeah. So in their interest to fix these problems, it's, it, yeah, it makes me <laughs> very angry. Yeah. yeah. Very angry. And I, I sat on the Veterans Advisory Board here in WA advising the Minister for Veterans. And even then, yeah, sitting at that table, it's like a circle jack. That's all yeah. it is. Yeah. It talks about their vision for how they want things to change, but nothing gets done. I literally resigned because I just felt like nothing was being done. Yeah. 
did two terms and we accomplished nothing. It was yeah. Like yeah, I I think it's a it's a it's an age thing because we're still stuck with all those Vietnam era type uh, old guys still stuck in. It's set, mm. set in their own ways. They, you know what I mean? They're just set in those same fucking ways. They'll never change. But it's slowly changing. I think the RSL is starting to change now. We've got a, a lot of young blood uh, in the in the RSL, which is good, um, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I stayed away from them for years because mm. of an incident in Melbourne. I went to join Williamstown RSL and I was interrogated by some dude there. <laughs> Turned out to be the president or the vice president or something. I'm telling him, you know, I serve with 6RER, I want to join, I've just moved to Melbourne, I'm looking for, you know, people to connect with, and his response was, they don't let blind people serve in the military. (laughs) What a fuckwit. I eventually got, when this came out, because I I shut my mouth and left, caught a a taxi and and went home. Um, This all came out years later. Um, RSL helped me with a, um, a, a concert to raise money for that, one foot forward march that I did. Yeah. And it all came out then and I got a got an apology from the president of um, RSL Victoria. And I said to him, look, it's, I'm not holding it against you or anything. It's some people are like that. Not everyone changes at once, but it did leave a sour taste in my mouth for RSLs until I got back to Perth. So. <laughs> fucking hell. Jesus Christ. What a story, <laughs> mate. You've got a life story from your fucking... Right. From the pre- from the priest turning up to your parents' house to this. Jesus Christ, mate. Mate, so we, we've been talking for uh, just on two hours now, mate. It's been absolutely fucking just crazy to hear just your, your life story, mate. You've gone from obviously being bullied at school through to uh, serving in operations and then being injured in operations and obviously overcoming the, you know, the addiction of pain medication and obviously the abuse of alcohol as well. Uh, and now obviously you're living a fucking killer life and – you got a massive, massive giant, yeah, massive fucking cool Viking beard. <laughs> mate, so I've got a couple of final questions that we generally ask all our guests. And, uh, mate, the first question, I think there's no better person to ask this question to uh, than yourself. Um, you know, what advice can you give to people just to, you know, fucking keep on keeping on, uh, you know, take – you know, whatever they're doing to the next level and just, just complete their goals. Obviously, again, you've come over the – the adversity of, uh, you know, losing your eyesight. It, I, I just can't imagine, you know, losing a limb or, you know, anything else, you know, it's it's manageable, but losing your eyesight, that's a complete different fucking ball game. Um, so, mate, what, what advice can you give? Uh, probably just for people to remember that every situation is different. If someone tells you that you can't do something, it's them telling you that they can't do it. It doesn't mean you can't. So... I think you need to take, people need to remember to take criticism as criticism, not as gospel, so that they can push past their own limits. Mm. Like, like they said I couldn't do that walk 370Ks to Sydney to Canberra down the coast. I did that. They said I couldn't do a lot of things and I went and did it because you've got to prove to yourself you can do these things. You're not proving it to anyone else. You just, it's to yourself. Yeah. Like that's the greatest advice I can give. It's if, if you want to do something, prove to yourself you can do it. Yeah, go and do it. Just fucking do it. Yeah, Nike, just do it. Nike, if you're listening, <laughs> if you're listening, sponsor the podcast. <laughs> Second question: What is the plans for the future? Now I know that you have started a uh, bit of a barbecue yeah, business. The catering company. Catering company. Sorry, yep. Grilling, um, seventeen oh five Grilling Co. Oof. 
May uh, is the obviously where the where the name comes from. Yeah. So growing that into a kind of successful little business, it's still brand new. Um, I've only done I think five five gigs or something like that. But it's it's just for me, it's a way to turn a passion into um, you know hustle, I guess. Yeah. I grew up in the kitchen around my mum watching her cook. Being Burmese, the food she made was spectacular. Oh, fuck yeah. I remember growing up when, when we were in Perth around my extended family every Sunday, um, we'd go to my, my mother's family's house and grandpa would be out there with a massive, huge wok. And I'm talking big, like a metre across wok, deep frying, uh, you know, Burmese food is half healthy and mostly deep fried. Yeah, yeah. But he's but deep frying in oil that's black. This is probably the same oil he's had since they moved to freaking dub Australia. <laughs> it came out of the Toyota as well. That <laughs> <laughs> tasted amazing. That's why no one gets it. Freaking oil that he brought back from Burma. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, food was always a big part of our family. Um, and being able to turn that passion into, well, into, you know, a job, into, into work. Um, is you know fantastic. Yeah, I love coming up with the recipes, and one of my favorite things to do when I have people around is to sit in. Like I stand in the kitchen and I'm prepping food, but I'll look at them or look in their direction and talk whilst I'm chopping. Yeah, and I've I've got pretty damn good knife skills. <laughs> the amount of people that get freaked out because I'm looking at them and talking and chopping and stuff at the same time. They yeah, it's a bit weird, but it, it it's one of those things. You know, as I said before, you want to do something, go and do it. Blind people aren't known for cooking. So yeah. I like breaking that mold a little bit. Yeah, right. Maybe a cooking TV show. ABC, if you're listening. Cooking <laughs> <TV> <laughs> Master <laughs> Chef. Master Chef. Maybe give that a crack. I, I finally, after years, convinced my mum to apply with me for uh, my kitchen rules. Oh, um, fuck yeah. Luckily, uh, well, she said luckily, the it had closed and this was years ago now mm. and i think if i had gotten on the show i probably would have pulled out at the last minute anyway because when you're on those shows do you win because you've got a sob story or because you can cook yeah <laughs> oh fuck winning winning's winning <laughs> <laughs> um mate third question guilty guilty pleasures What's uh, what do you got, mate? Because you're a dirty bloke from six R. You've got some dirty obsession with I don't know feet or something. I don't know. Talk. No, I love true crime shit. Oh, do you? There you go. Yeah. I you're, like the podcasts and the YouTube clips, and I mean, I, I'm a nerd. I grew up watching anime and comics and all that kind of thing, so I love all that stuff. But I, I don't feel guilty about loving them. Um, I probably like alcohol a bit more than I should. Oh, fuck it. Yeah. My- Mate, we all do. Don't you worry about that. You're not I alone. Make, I make mead and, and wine and beer and spirits, so it's I mean, it's just fun, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, That's right. No, true it, crime's good, mate. I fucking love that shit. Yeah, I just, I don't know what it, it seems to, it's exploded since the big C's been everywhere, but I don't know. It's just, I've watched these stories and I think somewhere deep inside, I just want to see how shit people can be. <laughs> yeah. Like how terrible some of these stories are and you, some of them are pretty, like, very, very hard to listen to. Mm. Then you hear what some of these people have done afterwards. Like there was one I heard the other week about a woman who was captured 
by this psychopath in a van and he cut off her limbs with a freaking axe. That's hectic. She's like, she's gone from that, from surviving in the desert overnight to saving herself and being one of the, you know, the most inspirational advocates for, you know, uh, women against, well, people against violence against women, basically. it's It was insane. I can't remember her name, but if you if anyone wants to Google it. Yeah, like it's, I'm, I'm going to Google pretty, it. Yeah, fuck yeah. Pretty big story. And the, the stuff she's gone on to do, she's recovered, she's gotten married, and she's just, ah. Oh. People think that veterans who get injured and go on to do stuff, they think they're inspirational. I think people like her are inspirational. Yeah. Now that's that's awesome, mate. That's awesome, mate. I'm going to chuck on a, a final question. Favorite band, song, band or song? Journey. I know, yeah, I know you're a music head, so yeah. What was it? Journey. Yeah, right. Fuck. Journey is like a American rock band responsible for all the hits everywhere. Um, they're kind of like America's version of Cold Chisel. In terms of the culture, yeah, you know, Australia. Well, actually, no, ACDC is probably a better one. The culture in Australia loving ACDC is similar to the culture in America loving Journey. Yeah, cool. Um, and the favorite song, one called "Stone in Love" and another one called "Lights." Yep. Yeah. Yeah, nice, mate. Sure, it's not Nikki Webster or Strawberry Kisses. Huh? You don't like Nikki Webster, Strawberry Kisses. I love Strawberry Kisses. But- <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's what Journey is uh, code name for, isn't it? Nikki Webster. No, Tony hates my nickname for her because <laughs> she's she's got red hair. I, I don't know if you've seen a picture. She's Tony's got bright red hair. Oh yeah. So <laughs> is this? <laughs> I used to call her Fanta Panda, <laughs> and she hates it. I think it's cute as hell, but no, she hates it. <laughs> oh, oh, Nikki Webster. I've thought of that in years. Yeah, Nikki L. Nikki. Last time I saw her was in Timor. Fuck! Did she go there? Did she? No, she was in. She was in FHM. Oh, 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 oh fuck! Yeah, what yeah. were you dirty <laughs> six area boys doing? No, well, obviously <laughs> I don't know how, but every every deployment, both deployments I've been on, you get free Ralphs and FHM. Oh yeah, like no, yeah. And that what was the other one? Zoo. I think, yeah, we had bit? we had a couple of zoo girls come to Dilly. Oh really? Yeah, it was good. <laughs> God, all we got was DFSW three hour. Oh fuck yeah! No <laughs> <laughs> hair, looks like massive gorilla dude. Yeah, I know, I know the exact dudes you're talking about too. Fucking, <laughs> they loved right. a bit of bum action too. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it's looks like that. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, chatting with you, and obviously again, uh, Blue Andrews uh, hooked us up, and uh, you're, you're a fucking good dude, mate. Real good dude. Yeah. Mate, uh, good luck with the with the barbecue. Definitely I'm fuck if I'm coming to Western Australia, mate, fucking whip it up. Get me a brisket. Yeah. Get those Any briskets. Song. Get those briskets going. We'll, I'll, I'll bring blue. I'll bring that pest out there. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get him to leave his uh his yeah. little abode. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck. I think he's in Bali at the moment, I'm pretty sure. I think I saw. Really? Yeah, I don't know. He's yeah, I don't know. Huh. I think that he's on that, that T V show starting up again soon. Well, uh, maybe that's why he's going to Bali. It's the only place he can get a tan. <laughs> mate, again, uh, thanks for giving me your time, mate. And, uh, yeah, let's stay, let's stay in contact. Love to have a beer and have some barbecue down the track. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Legend, mate. Uh, actually, if anyone wants to reach out to you, where can they find you 
on your business? Uh, 1705 Grilling Co. is on Instagram. Yep. Um, I have been off Facebook for, for years. So I've only just just logged back on to do a business profile and stuff like that, but that's not up and running yet. So your best bet is 1705 Grilling Co. Yeah, sweet. No, no drums at all, mate. We'll definitely – I'll link it all in and, uh, yeah, talk to you soon. No worries. Thanks, mate. Yeah, dude, my pleasure. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, you've got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is – forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.